Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Islam for Christians, episode 67, Islamic History, circa 610 to 622, Selected Stories from Pre-Islamic Mecca, part one. A very long time ago, in what seems like a distant universe from the vantage point of current time, where we are right now, there used to be these things called newspapers. And either in the back or in a separate section, there would be a thing called the sports section. And these sports sections were filled with words from sports writers. Now, often each reporter had what was called a beat, a team or a sport that you covered in its entirety, writing about games and news and analysis and anything that came up regarding that particular subject at least as much as you could fit in the space that you were allotted. Because, like I said, back in the ancient days, there was limited space for these words. So what went into the newspaper was always less than what you actually had. But you would accumulate these little interesting tidbits as a reporter. So no need to just throw them away. You'd hang on to them until the day when things were slower, and you could actually share these anecdotes or stats or strange occurrences or whatever random thing that you had. And when you did this, this article that you would write, we called it a notebook article because you were just printing random things that were literally often just written in your reporter's notebook. And you'd spew as many random, interesting things about your beat that you had held back over the weeks and months. They were fun to write, and the readers seemed to like it too. Now, how does that relate to us here on my Islam for Christians beat? This episode is a historic notebook article, a collection of the stories that may not have fit well into the previous stories being told about this period of 610 to 622, but which nonetheless are interesting and somewhat relevant, and I think worth telling. Uh, so here they are. Here's the first one. I call it, The Muslims Draw First Blood. Back in the early days, around the time Muhammad went public with his message, Muhammad and his companions would pray in secret, mainly to avoid harassment. Now, one of the places they did this would be in one of the many glens of Mecca. Now, when you hear the word glen, you usually think of Ireland or some green place with river glens or Scotland or the Shire in Tolkien's mythology. However, and I didn't know this until very recently, deserts have them too. Any place with hills or mountains will have glens. A glen is just a small valley, apparently. It can be anywhere. It's a dip between hills and, obviously, a very good place to hide. So they would try to pray in these glens around Mecca. And one day, a group of pagans came across the group while they were praying, the group of Muslims. The pagans interrupted the Muslims, and they mocked them and they just wouldn't allow the prayers to continue. Words escalated into louder words, and eventually a fight broke out. 
a man named Saad Ibn Abu Waqas grabbed the jawbone of a camel, struck one of the pagans, and wounded him badly. I should clarify, this is a Muslim doing the swinging of the jawbone of the camel here. And this was the first blood ever shed by a Muslim. And that's it, pretty much. There isn't a whole lot more to this story, but what made it interesting to me, it's not just for its novelty as a historic first, you know, the first blood shed for Islam, but it's also because it invokes a biblical image. It's Samson reaching for the jawbone of a donkey. And this being Arabia, it was a camel instead. Obviously, the bone is really the only similarity in the stories. Saad just wounded someone while Samson actually killed a bunch of people in the Bible. But I just thought it was a cool story nonetheless. And this next one, uh, I call it an attempted bribe and the ultimate in cynical politics. A year or two, or three maybe, into Muhammad's public ministry, so a year real early. It was around the time Hamza converted. There was a Quraysh tribal chief named Utba ibn Rabia. Uh, that is probably a name you should know as we move from the Meccan era into the Medinan era, although, spoiler alert, he won't be alive for very long. Hamza kills him in the duels before the Battle of Badr in 624. And his death is the reason for the crazed vendetta from one of the only female characters in the old movie, The Message. Uh, his daughter was the one training that slave without a spear to kill Hamza in the next battle, you know, which he does. If you've seen the movie, if not, ignore what I just said. So this powerful chieftain thought he could smooth out all the disagreements and disunity affecting the Quraysh because of Muhammad's new ministry. So he goes to Muhammad. He calls him nephew <laughs> in this story. And doesn't it seem like Muhammad has about 3,000 uncles? So he says, nephew, you have divided your people and your community. You have ridiculed their customs, insulted their gods, and accused their ancestors of being unbelievers. So, let me make a few suggestions, and maybe you will listen to one of them. Never one to reject constructive conversation, Muhammad naturally agreed, and Utba went on. He said, if you want money, we can pool our resources and make you the richest man in Mecca. If it's honorifics you seek, we can make you a chief. If it's power you seek, we can make you a king. And if you are possessed by something otherworldly, something spiritual, we can find the finest physicians and they can cure you. So Muhammad listened and he waited patiently for Utba to finish. And then he gave him his response. And he responded with a Quranic verse, Surah 41, which starts like this. Ha Mim. Those are the Arabic disjointed letters. Uh, see the Quran episode. I believe it was episode eight for that, if you don't know what that means. I mean, it starts Ha Mim. This is a revelation from the most compassionate, most merciful. 
It is a book whose verses are perfectly explained, a Quran in Arabic for people who know, delivering good news and warning. Yet most of them turn away, so they do not hear. They say, our hearts are veiled against what you are calling us to. There is deafness in our ears, and there is a barrier between us and you. So do whatever you want, and so shall we. Now that's the key part. Our hearts are veiled against what you are calling us to. Remember that line. Our hearts are veiled against what you are calling us to. So Muhammad continued to recite the surah from the beginning until verse 37, which is, Among his signs are the day and the night, the sun and the moon. Do not prostrate to the sun or the moon, but prostrate to Allah, who created them all, if you truly worship him alone. Saying this, Muhammad prostrates, that means he got down bowing head to the ground. And when he finished, he said, you have heard what you have heard. The rest remains with you. And that's why I emphasized the line from before, our hearts are veiled against what you are calling us to. Because this guy, Utba, his heart is clearly veiled against what Muhammad is trying to tell him. Really what God is trying to tell him. So, done with this, Utba went back to his companions to report on what had happened. And these people noticed that he looked like a completely changed man. Otba said he had never heard words like that before. And so he told them that they should leave Muhammad alone. Because his words, his words, these words that he heard, they will be inscribed all over the world. Now, not that he converted. <laughs> I said the true meaning of what he heard, his heart was veiled against that. So he was just thinking politically here. So mentally evaluating the possibilities, uh, he proceeds with some jaw-dropping cynicism. He says, if someone else kills Muhammad in Arabia, well, that's good for us because things will go back to the way that they were. And if Muhammad actually conquers the Arabs, well, his power actually becomes our power too, because we are also Quraysh. We can be prosperous through him. So what he's saying is, if you play this right, it's win-win. Now his companions, though, they thought he was mesmerized under some kind of spell. And he says to them, basically what Muhammad said to him. You have my opinion. Do with it what you will. So you see, Muhammad is on a higher spiritual level than Otba, because that's what Muhammad prized above all. But Otba prized worldly gain and politics above all, even better than his companions. So he was actually on a higher level so he kind of spoke down to them the way Muhammad spoke down to him. So 
Otto is clearly good at this worldly stuff, but again, he's completely missing the point. He just, I can't believe that lack of awareness in this situation. I mean, and not on the practical level, on the practical political level, he was right. If you leave Muhammad alone, worst case scenario, he's killed by someone else or we become the greatest tribe in Arabia. And the history would prove him correct. But the lack of awareness, I mean, the spiritual lack of awareness, he's operating on the most surface of surface levels. And it never occurs to him that, hey, um, what are the consequences if this guy is actually telling the truth? What if the power of those words do not come from him, but from something more powerful? What does that mean for me spiritually? What does that mean for my view of, of the metaphysical world, of the world that we cannot see, but is still there? If Muhammad is right, am I in trouble? And none of this occurs to him. So why is this story so important? Why is it in my notebook? This story really, to an extreme degree, highlights the differences between Muhammad and the Meccan elite. The cynicism of this character is just so raw, so crass. Rather than thinking this man might be telling him something important, he instead only thinks of how it can be turned to his advantage, to his gain. If you asked a person like this guy, you know, what does it truly profit a man to gain the world but lose his soul? He'd look at you blankly, and not necessarily because he doesn't believe that there is no soul, but because he simply doesn't have the required vision to look beyond his direct worldly interests. And what's fun about that is that that level of stupidity, that level of cynicism, it's not just confined to pre-Islamic Mecca. It's timeless. It's everywhere. Because people are timeless, and people are everywhere. You don't have to go very far to find a group of power powerful, spiritually illiterate elites. That's a tongue twister, isn't it? Powerful, spiritually illiterate elites. You know, be they cultural, political, or financial elites. And sometimes even religious elites make it into this group. They are everywhere, and they always will be. And now the um, probably the last story of this first part. I call it an Islamic lesson in how miracles work. The leaders of the Quraysh were not exactly spiritual people. You've seen that. Uh, they're not spiritual, to put it mildly. So a major sticking point for the Qureshi leadership when Muhammad was asking them to convert to Islam, the, the mental block they just could never get over was, for the most part, hey, what's in it for us? So in this story, we have the Qureshi leaders talking with Muhammad and almost negotiating like, it's some kind of political treaty or an armistice or something, and seeing what can be gained from adapting Muhammad's religion. 
what's in it for us, they're asking. Muhammad tells them that their lives will be better now and in the hereafter, but their focus is strictly on material gain. So Muhammad, they tell him, Muhammad, if your God really wants to help us out, why doesn't he change this harsh region we live in? How about God get rid of all these mountains around us that box us in? And give us some water, you know. How about a great rivers like the Tigris and the Euphrates? We're sick of living in this dry hole in the desert. And then raise our ancestors and have them tell us the truth of the only God. And then let God send an angel to us directly and let him give us castles and great wealth. Let God sprinkle bits of heaven otherwise. You know, if he doesn't do any of these things, shower gifts upon us, we will always be against you. So Muhammad hears all this, and, you know, he responds in a very Muhammad way. He's very cool under pressure, and he's used to hearing a whole lot of stupid things being thrown at him. So he replied, that is a matter for God. That's it. And you can't help but think how similar this sounds to Jesus's trials in the desert when he was being tempted by Satan. And he said, you do not put your Lord God to the test. God is in charge, not some unbelieving rabble demanding miracles. Now, Muhammad may have known that, so he just said, that's a matter for God. And then he left. Of course, being a human... Muhammad was disappointed, and but not necessarily in the lack of miracles, but because he didn't convert anyone. That's kind of the point. And the people demanding miracles, they were certain God did not exist, because surely if Muhammad was telling the truth, God would come down dramatically and defend his apostle. But for whatever reason, God just doesn't work that way. I'm not God, but obviously, but my best guess as to why is that vulgar displays of power greatly interfere with the concept of free will. Because are you really freely accepting God if he's holding a 20 kiloton bomb over your head? Anyway, I mean, who am I to dissect the wisdom of God? It's a fun intellectual territory, but it's folly by definition. You know, I'm probably dumber for even saying that. However, Muhammad did receive a miracle shortly afterward, just not the kind of miracle the Quraysh had wanted. It was more of an angelic intervention, which I suppose is also a miracle, right? I mean, I think, yeah, let's call it a miracle. Here's the story. As Muhammad prayed, as he was bowing down in an extremely vulnerable position, as if you've seen the Muslim prayer position, and it's kind of hard to wield a weapon while you're doing that. Abu Jahl grabbed a rock. Now, Abu Jahl was a chief antagonist of Muhammad and of the Muslims. So, obviously, he was clearly up to no good in this situation. And he advanced on Muhammad with the rock in his hand. But he soon became terrified and pale over his entire body, just turned white. He lost all strength in that hand to the point he could not hold the stone anymore. And then he retreated back toward his anti-Muslim buddies. 
So what happened? His, his friend says, hey, what happened? What was that? Abu Jahl said a camel had gotten between him and Muhammad, and it had the largest head, shoulders, and teeth that he had ever seen on a camel. And he said, that camel, it looked like it was about to eat me. Now, later on, Muhammad would say that particular camel was the angel Gabriel. So there's the type of miracle we're more used to, the subtle kind rather than the massive show of force. It's the miracle you need rather than the miracle that you want. And funny enough, this same story, it's repeated in Islamic lore. You know, this isn't just the first, this isn't the only time. This idea of Gabriel as a ferocious camel who looks like he's going to eat someone. And in this other story, Abu Jahl's involved again. So is Muhammad, obviously. And in this story, Abu Jahl, he takes a camel from a foreigner and doesn't pay for it. I think it's kind of like he buys it, but then doesn't give him the money because he's Abu Jahl. He's, he's, he's evil. <laughs> so this foreigner seeks out Muhammad, you know, saying, hey, this guy, he, he can solve problems. He can talk to people. And Muhammad says to the foreigner that, Actually, yes, you will receive your money from Abu Jahl. And when he says this, the particular camel that Abu Jahl had basically robbed from this foreigner, the camel becomes so fierce, so large, and Abu Jahl so scared, again, that he pays the foreign man what he owed him. And in this story, even the description was the same. You have Abu Jahl saying, that camel looked like it was going to eat me. And the obvious theme here is that God is looking out for his messenger. Or as my Aunt Mary used to say, you know, angels all around you. And Muhammad certainly had that. There's not a whole lot of theological implications to this story, I don't think. I just thought it was a cool story to tell. Again, thus, this is the history notebook. Okay, I had way more stories than I thought I did originally. I just keep on looking up stories that I wanted to tell. So I'm just going to end this right here and call it part one. So stay tuned for part two. Um, and among those stories will be uh, Muhammad wrestles. Gabriel goes on a killing spree. Muhammad converts some Christians and a few other stories. Thank you. And I'll talk to you next time. Insha'Allah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. 
I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.